God comes down. This morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can work your way there. Uh, we'll, we'll read that together in a moment. But I, I love the Christmas season. I, I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. It, it's, it's really been one of my favorite holidays since, since I really I, I could remember. I love the whole atmosphere leading up to Christmas. The anticipation, the decorations, the traditions, the colors, the smells, and the sounds of Christmas. As a kid, Christmas meant presents presence. Uh, what kid, and I mean uh, little kids and grown-up kids, what kids don't like to get gifts, right? All, all, everybody loves to receive gifts. Christmas was great because there were, there were usually more gifts and bigger gifts than I would get on any other holiday, including my birthday. But I also love Christmas because uh, I, only re, I, I not only received gifts, but, but I got to give gifts. I love Christmas because it's a time of giving and a time of receiving. And although our Western culture, uh, in our Western culture, materialism and commercialism have wrapped the true gift of Christmas in so much ostentatious glitz, glimmer, and greedy guise that it's difficult, if not impossible, to unwrap the true gift of Christmas. This morning, uh, I don't want to take away the charm of anticipation that Christmas Day brings, but I want to remind us about the true gift of Christmas. In fact, I want to remind us that God is the originator of all good gifts. The gifts we give at Christmas are meant to remind us of the greatest gift, the triune God, gave us on that first Christmas. So, out of honor for God's word, which is a, a gift to us from God, please open your Bibles uh, to chapter Romans chapter 5, and if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, so please follow along in your own copy of God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions, transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespasses. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one, man, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, into, uh, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. I I remember uh, one Christmas as a family. Uh, This is before I was married. My, My family and I, we went down to Arizona to celebrate Christmas with my mom's extended family, right? My grandparents had a condo in Arizona. They were snowbirds, uh, and they had a place in Arizona, and and the whole entire extended family decided to uh, enjoy Christmas together in Arizona. Now, at the time, I was a selfish junior hire, and I wasn't particularly excited about this Christmas uh, because of the hubbub of the family reunion. There were, or, uh, there were aunts and uncles and grandparents, and you would think for a kid, most people, this would mean more presence for me, right? The, the more people, I'm a young kid, junior higher, bratty junior higher, by the way, um, it, it meant more presence, and that would be very exciting, right? Well, uh, that wasn't the case for me. For me as a selfish junior hire, it meant that uh, these aunts and these uncles, they didn't really know me, right? They, they didn't know me, and that also meant they had no idea what I would want for Christmas. And I, I tend to be pretty particular. <clears throat> Just ask my wife. Actually, it seemed to me at that, at that age, in that stage of life, that uh, ants, and don't, don't take offense to this, remember I was a self, I'm qualifying, I was a selfish teenager, right? Junior higher. Uh, my perspective was that ants and grandmas in particular had a villainous superpower of knowing the exact thing a punk, self-absorbed junior higher wouldn't want for Christmas. They, they knew it. They knew that one thing. I didn't even know what it was, but they could find it. You know, you all know what I mean. Uh, Let me give you an example. Getting Superman uh, jammies from my parents when I was age five, that was awesome. Right? It came with the cape and everything. That was awesome. But getting them from my aunt when I was 15, that was not just humiliating, but cruel. Right? Right? Getting, and bear with me, this is just, you'll just hang in there. Getting whitey tidies from your mom for Christmas, well, that's one thing, right? Uh, that's, that's, 
disappointing as it is. I'm sorry, moms, if you bought underwear for your kids. Um, I just, that was the worst. But it's a whole nother thing when at a family reunion, you get a package of multicolored whitey tidies, if you can even call them that, from an aunt who then you have to open in front of everybody because we're taking turns opening presents and everybody watches as you open the whitey tidies, except they're not white. They're definitely tight, but they're not white, <laughs> right? And opening it. And then of course you have that, that, that's embarrassing enough, but you have to have that one wise aleck uncle, you know, that, that has to speak up and says, hey, you should try them on. Show us to a 15-year-old, right? That Christmas was not one that I uh, care to remember. I'm, st I'm still seeing my therapist about that one. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a gift you didn't want? Maybe, maybe a gift you didn't expect, but, but then it turned out to be the exact gift that you needed? These are the kinds of gifts that God gives to us. Not often does he give us gifts that we want, right? And, and thank the Lord that he doesn't, right? I, I remember as a kid, I wanted to be famous. I am so thankful I, was, I wouldn't be a horrible, famous person. It would destroy my life and probably a lot of other people's lives, right? Thank God he doesn't give us what we want, but he gives us what we, what we need, Today I want to use Romans 5 in conjunction with a number of other passages to consider God's greatest gift to us. We're going to start with his greatest Christmas gift, but I want to show you how the gift of Jesus at Christmas is a gift that keeps on giving, right? It's not just one gift. In that one gift, there are many, many gifts. We're going to look at three of them today. So this is my, my proposition. My proposition is this. The gift of the first Christmas was the Trinitarian gifts, and I know I'm blurring, uh, I, I'm mixing my uh, plurals and singulars and plurals here, but the gift of the first Christmas was the Trinitarian gifts we needed most. The Trinitarian gifts that we needed most is what he gave us at Christmas. We are in the, as I already mentioned, the fourth sermon of our Advent series. Um, again, our series has been considering Christmas from the perspective of redemptive history, looking at how God has come down throughout redemptive history. We started in Genesis with creation in the fall, then considered God's coming down in the Old Testament through his covenant relationships with the forefathers of faith, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Last week, we considered the necessity of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus as the means for God coming down in Christ. This week, I, I want to take us from incarnation to new creation, right? We're, we're going to go back to the incarnation, and I want to consider it after the virgin birth and end up with the new creation. So I'm tipping my hand a little bit as to where we're headed, um, but... I want you to see this explicitly as we wrap this series up. So, my, my first point is this. The first gift of Christmas is the person of the Son. The first gift of Christmas 
is the person of the Son. Now, if you remember, my proposition is the Trinitarian gifts. What we're going to see is there are three gifts that we're going to be looking at today. And each one of them is a gift from a, a person of the Trinity. All right? The first one is from the second person of the Trinity, the person of Jesus. Romans 5 has been called the tale of two men. Because in our passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam. In the sermon last week, we considered the necessity of Jesus' virgin conception. If you remember, I pointed out that Luke's language in chapter 1 of his gospel is reminiscent of God creating sacred space in Genesis 1. Mary's womb and creation are presented in parallel as sacred spaces. And in each of these spaces, God uniquely forms a man. At creation, Adam is formed from the dust of the ground. In Mary's womb, the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh in the person of Jesus. Two men who didn't have human fathers, but who were directly formed by God. We, we talked about that last week, the necessity of the virgin birth. Paul says at the end of verse 14 in our text today, he says, Adam was a type of the one to come, pointing to, referencing, suggesting Jesus. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That is Jesus. Jesus, in other words, is the second Adam. But why was a second Adam needed? Why was a second Adam necessary? Well, Paul explains in verse 12. He says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's name, if you didn't know this, and I'm sure we've talked about it before, Adam's name literally means humanity. In Adam, the first man uh, was, so to speak, the potential in Adam was the potential of all who would follow, right? In Adam's loins was the potential. Everybody that is came from Adam. The potential, Adam has the potential for all people. Adam was our head. He was our representative, our progenitor, our, our, our first forefather. When in the sacred space of the garden, Adam chose to rebel against God, in him all those who are from him, all those born of Adam, in other words, became inheritors of Adam's legacy. As Paul puts it, through Adam's rebellion, sin came into the world and spread to all people. So that, as Paul wrote earlier in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of Adam's sin, every human born in Adam is born into Adam's sin. We are born with a sinful nature. That is a disposition to sin and a disposition not only to sin, but to turn away from God like Adam did. But it's not simply that we were born with a sinful nature. That's not all that is included in there, right? Yes, we are born with a sinful nature, but we are also personally culpable, guilty personally of the sins that you and I have personally committed. 
In other words, we all choose to sin on our own. Although Adam, our forefather, was the progenitor of sin, we have all followed his lead in our own ways. We are all guilty of Adam's sin in our own way. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Death reigned over those whose sin was not like Adam. Even though we were born into Adam's condemnation, we added to that condemnation by our own sin. So I want, to, I want us to understand the full weight of the predicament that we find ourselves in because of Adam's sin. If you remember in our first sermon series, we talked about how humanity was created. Humanity was created for relationship with God. God's people, Adam and Eve, that is humanity, in God's place, that is in the garden, in the land of Eden, were there to dwell with God with his presence represented by the tree of life. God told Adam he was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but deceived by the serpent, that is exactly what Adam ends up doing. An open rebellion to God. Don't, don't misunderstand. Adam's choice to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was open rebellion to God. But what, what did God say would be the consequences. Don't eat of the tree. Don't eat of the tree. But if you do, this is what will happen. What does he say? Genesis 2.17, In the day you eat of it, in the day you disobey me, in the day you choose rebellion, in the day you distance yourself, you reject me, you put yourself up in opposition to me, the King of kings, the God of all creation, in the day you do that, In the day you mutiny, in the day you rebel, you will surely die. God will not tolerate a rival. Yet, when we read in the text, when they, in blatant disobedience, eat from the forbidden tree of Genesis 3, they don't experience the fullness of death that we expect. Curious. After all, God, the creator of everything, said that, and, and, and in fact, he even promises that the day you, you will surely die. And remember, in, in Hebrew, you don't have that word surely. It's in the day you eat of it, you will die, die, right? Uh, putting the word twice is emphasizing the severity of it. You will absolutely, with no uncertain terms, you will die. But keep in mind, Who's the one making that promise? It's the creator of all things. However, at the end of Genesis 3 and even into chapters 4 and 5, we see Adam and Eve actually very much alive. Yes, they were exiled from God's presence. Certainly, they they were kicked out of the garden. They they were removed from God's presence, sent east of God's place east of Eden, but they still were alive. This is a curious fact, given that at the end of Genesis 3, verse 21, uh, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, made for Adam and his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. 
that's interesting. Why include that detail? God clothed them. He kicked them out of the garden from his presence, exiled them. But then it says that they were, God, God made garments of skin and clothed them. This is interesting because on the day they ate from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from, promising them that if they did, they would surely die on that very day. The first couple didn't die, but something else did. Adam and Eve are clothed in dead animal skins. In other words, symbolically, they're clothed in a death sentence. They have to wear the symbol of death clothed in an animal that did die on that fateful day. So an analogy can be helpful here. Uh, picture uh, the fall, the rebellion, Adam and Eve's fall, in legal terms. Uh, if we were to do that, it would be as though Adam and Eve treasonously attempted, and this is, I know, this is a poor scenario, but bear with me. They treason, treasonously attempted to overthrow all the world leaders at once by taking them all out. Of course, it was a foolish thing for them to think that they could do. Uh, and of course, their attempt falls short, and they are captured, and they are brought before the court, and they're found guilty. Then their sentence is read, and they receive their due punishment. Their sentence is read. You are guilty, and therefore, your sentence is death. They receive the death penalty. The moment that sentence is read, and they, they are effectively dead people walking. Right? The, the, the sentence isn't carried out right at that moment. The execution isn't carried out right at that moment. But they're dead people walking. Immediately, they're escorted out of the courtroom, exiled from society, and clothed in prison suits. But they don't get normal prison suits. They get prison suits that identify them as ones who are on death row. In a sense, they have a daily reminder of their death sentence because their prison suits stand out. We're those that are condemned to death. They're not dead yet, but they're as good as dead. Their execution date is set, but that date is not yet. For the rest of their lives, they're living as exiles in prison, awaiting their execution day. But, but let's take this analogy further. Let's say that, they're in the, that they, Adam and Eve, this, this guilty couple, are in the same prison. And that they share even a same cell. Eventually, babies are born to them. Now, you have to use your imagination on this next part because this isn't how our prison systems work. But imagine that if babies born to this guilty couple, this condemned couple, were born into this guilty couple's death sentence. And that they lived with their parents for their life on death row. And as it turns out, it, it ends up that it was actually good to keep them there, keep these, these babies there, because as the babies grow up, turns out they're just as rotten as their parents. They have their own treasonous and murderous uh, devices and choices. They prove they too deserve the death sentence that they inherited. Now, uh, did you know that it's not uncommon? I don't know if you knew this. Did you know it's not uncommon it, it happens not every day but it's not uncommon for inmates on death row to die of natural causes my wife and I are very we, we enjoy um, watching real crime 
There's probably something wrong with us. Well, there's probably a lot wrong with us, but we like watching real crime. I like real crime where the, the people get caught. I don't like the unsolved mysteries garbage. Um, when they get caught, and we're always marveling at how um, the, the punishment that people get for taking a life uh, never seems to equate to the crime that they have committed. Every now and then, in, in particular states, they still enforce the death penalty. And in those states, when the death penalty is enforced, the, the, the actual execution date is put far out. And sometimes the prisoners will die of natural causes. So, in our analogy, let's say that the original couple die of natural causes, but not before populating the entire prison with children, all who inherited their, their parents' death sentence. This, I think, gets to what Paul is saying about our passage today. Paul writes, there, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. The weighty truth of this is it's not an analogy. You and I are under a death sentence that we have inherited from our forefathers all the way back to our first parents. But, but more than that, we've not just inherited a death sentence, we've also earned a death sentence. We've earned our own death sentence. We've all sinned against a perfect and holy and eternal God, thus securing our death sentence. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, for no one seeks God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have. Why? Because we've been exiled from Eden. We don't choose God. We choose ourselves. I choose me again and again and because God is holy because God is righteous because God is perfect and because God is eternal my sins against him well the punishment needs to fit the crime and when you when you sin against when you transgress against the almighty the punishment needs to fit the crime. We've all broken and transgressed God's righteousness and his perfect law. We're all guilty, exiled, imprisoned to sin, and carry with us a death sentence. From a worldly standpoint, now there might be some here, even this morning, uh, that, that might, uh, I don't know, perhaps struggle with the idea of being guilty of sin, uh, so much so that that we're so guilty that we actually deserve a death sentence. Um, maybe you've heard someone argue and say something like this. They say, well, I'm a good person, and, and really I'm living my life in a way where my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Right? I've never murdered anybody. I've never done anything that bad. I've never, you know, I've never been put in prison or anything. But, but get this, the, the problem with that logic is that uh, we're measuring, when, when we say these kind of things, we're measuring a, our sin against other sinners. So I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm, I'm not as bad as that guy or that guy or that guy or that gal. And I have never killed anybody. We're, we're measuring sin among sinners. 
We can always find someone who is, who is worse than we are. But we aren't measuring, uh, we as humans, as sinners, we actually aren't the measuring rod. We're not the measuring rod. We can't measure our righteousness on the basis of other sinners, hoping that we're just ahead above other sinners. We didn't create ourselves. God created us, and he created us for him. We have a purpose, and that purpose is to be in union, in fellowship, in harmony with the living God. He's the measuring rod. Isaiah 6 tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. Which, of course, as I already mentioned about when a word is repeated twice, we translate it, surely death, right? You will die, die. You will surely die. But when a word is repeated three times, it, it, it's a Hebrewism, or Hebraism to say that it is, it is without limit to the furthest degree. In other words, God in his holiness is without limit. There are no boundaries. There is no limit to God's holiness. It extends, if we were to think about it in measurable temporal terms, it goes forever. There is no end to it. But not only is God holy, we're told throughout Scripture that God is eternal. That he has no beginning and he never ends. This means when we sin, we sin against an infinitely holy God. So that our slightest sin, uh, in contrast to the holiness of God, his utter purity, the radiance of his holiness, is shown to be immeasurably, immeasurably sinful. Uh, to put it, put it plainly, you know the, the term a white lie? Right? It's, it's, a, it's a lie that we tell that really harms no one, so we can overlook it. But a white lie, in contrast to the holiness of a pure and perfect, a immeasurably holy God, is utter darkness, blackness, damnable. Because we're not the measuring rod. It's white to us when we measure it among sinners. But when we, when we measure it to the holiness of God... We stand condemned. But not only is our sin infinitely sinful before God in contrast to his holiness, but we have another problem. God is eternal. Meaning, when our sin comes before God, God goes on forever. Our sin stands before God forever and ever. And is infinitely offensive because he's eternal and he's immeasurably Holy. The punishment, again, the punishment needs to fit the crime, which is why the Bible teaches about the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. Uh, this is an immensely uncomfortable doctrine, one we don't tend to like to talk about. But, but not talking about it, and this is important, not talking about it doesn't make it less true. It actually makes it more true and more certain. In Adam, the promise of the surety of death, eternal death, that is our inheritance in Adam. But this is exactly where the first gift of Christmas comes in. Paul writes in verse 15 of our passage, But the gift, but the gift. 
is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, uh, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, that the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, that is Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many, many trespasses brought justification. What's Paul saying? He's saying the inheritance of Adam's condemnation, the inheritance of Adam is condemnation and death. If you are in Adam, if you are a descendant of Adam, which we all are, then Adam's inheritance, condemnation and death, is our inheritance. Adam and Eve were sentenced to death and exiled to death row. Every son and daughter of Adam has been born in exile and on death row. And we inherit and confirm that sentence. But notice Paul's word, the free gift is not like the trespass. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christmas. He's talking about Christmas. The free gift God gave to us when God came down to us at Christmas and the birth of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. He came down to us, wrapped in human flesh, fully God, fully man. In our analogy, and this analogy begins to break down quickly, but in our analogy, this would be like the judge who issued the sentence somehow entered into Adam's condemnation, entered into these prisoners' condemnation, uh, entered into this condemned family through natural birth, but was unable, uh, or but rather was able to maintain his not guilty status, right? He enters in as an outsider. He enters in through natural birth and becomes part of the family tree, but maintains his status as not guilty. The guiltless judge entered into our exile, our death sentence, as truly and fully one of us, but with a non-guilty or a not guilty status. This is what happens at Christmas. This is the gift of Christmas. God comes to us in our guilty estate. Uh, I love the, the church father, Jerome, puts it this way. Jesus was born, talking about Jesus' birth in a stable. Jesus was born in a dung heap because that's where he knew he would find us. On that first Christmas, God took on flesh. The apostle John wrote, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Remember, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence was among his people throughout the book of Genesis. Jesus tabernacled. Jesus came down. The second person of the Trinity came down. And he became God's person. He became the place where God's presence most fully dwelt. This is why Jesus could compare himself to the temple and say, destroy this temple and three days later, I will raise it up. Why? The temple was supposed to be the place where God's presence, the footstool of God on earth. But Jesus says, I'm here and I'm greater than the temple and the presence of God in me because I am God, the second person of the Trinity. I'm greater than the temple. So tear it down. And three days later, I'll raise it up talking about his resurrection. 
But not only was Jesus the place of God's presence, but he was God's person. Jesus is the second Adam. The only Jesus and Adam, as I've already mentioned, didn't have biologic, biological fathers. The only two people in are two men in history to not have biological fathers. Their father was God. Only Jesus and Adam experienced sinful humanity. Only Adam and Jesus have truly experienced what it means to be perfectly, fully, completely human and to bear the image of God completely. Only they. C.S. Lewis says, all of us, because of our sin, we, always, we are all subhuman. Right? Because we don't live up to what we were created to be. We're subhuman. Only Adam and Jesus lived, and Eve, lived the fully human life. They bore the image of God perfectly. Yet Adam sinned and inherited death. Jesus, the second Adam, never sinned. Only Jesus truly lived a fully human life. And as it, all, as it was always intended to be lived, in vital union with the Father, you might say, good for Jesus, but what does that have to do with me? How, how, does, that, how does that gift translate to me? Uh, this is the important part, of course, to understand. Adam's, Adam's inheritance was death. Descendants of Adam, their inheritance is exile from God and his death sentence. But then enters Jesus, who does not have Adam as his father, but is still born of a woman. And so participates really, actually, in Adam's line. Jesus was like Adam before the fall, without sin and blameless before God. God the Son entered Adam's family tree and lives the life Adam and all of us were created to live. A life of obedience, an unbroken fellowship with the Father. In one sense, Jesus is a truer Adam than even Adam was himself. Adam, um, rather, in... Uh, Therefore, as the second Adam, Jesus was uniquely able to take Adam's death sentence and to completely satisfy it. Paul's words in our passage, verse 18, says, Therefore, as one man's trespasses led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness, Jesus, led to justification for all men. Death was inaugurated in Adam, but that death, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God delayed that, said your death sentence is still to come. And he waited until Jesus showed up on the scene. And Jesus consummated the death sentence laid on Adam and his descendants. Right? Adam, or Jesus fulfilled Adam's sentence to the fullest. He completed he paid the price. He was executed, so to speak, in the fullness of God's wrath was poured out on him. And what I want you to understand is that Adam's line came to an end. The sentence of Adam's death came to an end in the person of Jesus on the cross. The guilt that Adam had was borne by Jesus on the cross. It ends Adam's death sentence. That's really good news. That's really good news. But there's more. Not only did Jesus lay to rest the inheritance of Adam, but as the second Adam, and, and this, is, this is where it changes everything, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He came to life again. 
as a second Adam, a new line, right? And as the second Adam, he's, he's established a new family tree, a family tree that is based on Jesus and Jesus' resurrected life inaugurated Jesus inaugurated a new humanity with a new heritage, a new inheritance. This is the gift of Christmas. So here's the thing, right? That, that, that's good news. Like Jesus brought Adam's, Adam's uh, death sentence to completion. That doesn't have to be paid anymore. But, but here's the problem. This is, this is why Jesus, you know, uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John or Jesus in John's Gospel goes on to say, but whoever doesn't believe in Him remains under judgment. In other words, who's your father? Adam or Jesus? This is the question of the Gospel. This is the question of Christmas. This is the gift of Christmas. Who's your father? Of what line do you belong to? Because whoever your father is, that's whose inheritance you will receive. If you don't turn from Adam, if you don't renounce Adam, if you don't move away from Adam and, and renounce your lineage in Adam, if you don't do that, you still, as Scripture says again and again, you're walking by the flesh. And you're still saying, you know what? Jesus came, paid the, paid the penalty. But you know what? I, I actually, I don't want to accept that. I'm going to pay the penalty myself. You're still under Adam's condemnation. And until in faith, do you say, and you come, you say, I can't pay it. I am going to trust that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. My, my judgment, my death sentence, Jesus has paid it. I trust Jesus. I trust his death. I live as though Jesus' death was true. And not only that, but I live as though Jesus is alive. Which gets us to our second point. Although I'm running out of time, so we're only going to get, I'll mention them quickly. The second gift of Christmas is the power of the Spirit, right? Um, I'm going to go off notes here. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, we looked at Luke chapter 1. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew affirms this in his gospel narrative. Uh, he says Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, at his baptism, the Spirit visibly came on him. John says in his gospel that it, John the Baptist says, and I saw it, I knew he was the Messiah because the Spirit remained on him. Then Jesus, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, was tempted. But he leaned on the Spirit of God and did not give in to temptation like his forefather. Then Luke says, from there Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, went into Galilee and began his teaching ministry. What's that saying? It's, it's saying that Jesus is the Spirit-filled man. right? Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 prophesize. How are you going to know who the Messiah is? There were lots of Messiah, a lot of people throughout Israel's history that said, I'm the Messiah. How were you to know who the Messiah was? Do you know? Well, Isaiah tells us three different times. He says, 
the Messiah is the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. The one who does Spirit-filled things. Who heals the blind. Who sets the captives free. Who declares proclamation, this is the day of the Lord. Jesus was the Spirit-filled man. Now, this is important because... At Christmas, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in the necessity of the virgin birth. But this matters to you and it matters to me. Because if Jesus only paid Adam's sin, that would be great. But we'd still have no hope. Because we would go right back to sinning. Right? But here's the thing. Um, Scholars recognize, and I I think we can see this in the gospel accounts. Jesus lived a sinless life. We're told that in the book of Hebrews. He lived a sinless life. You and I do not. Jesus lived a sinless life. Do you know how he lived a sinless life? Um, we would talk about this in my classes at, at college, and, uh, and students would most often say, well, he's a second person of the Trinity. He couldn't sin. Okay, like, I don't disagree with that, but that's not what the Gospels tell us why Jesus lived a sinless life. The primary reason, according to the Gospels, according to the Bible, that Jesus lived a sinless life is because he walked by the Spirit. He walked by the Spirit. He was a Spirit-filled man who walked by the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5.16. Paul says, If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another, so that you cannot do the things that you want to do. What is he talking about? The spirit and the flesh are in opposition. Jesus walked by the spirit so he didn't indulge the flesh. What do you walk by? What do I walk by? Well, as sons of Adam, we walk in the flesh. But because Jesus rose from the dead and created a new line of humanity, a new humanity, And because he told his disciples, you have to let me go because where I'm going, you cannot follow. But don't worry, I will send a comforter. What's the comforter? The very spirit that Jesus had, he has given to his people. So that you can walk by the spirit of God. And that's what scripture commands us to do. How do you, in fact, more than that, how do you know You have faith in God. How do you know that you're His? The Spirit of God is a deposit, a seal that God impresses in us through regeneration, giving us a new heart, a Spirit-filled heart, a heart of flesh, so that we can respond to God. We can obey God, so we can walk with God. We can walk by His Spirit, just as Jesus did, and not gratify the desires of our flesh. And the Spirit guarantees our inheritance in the saints. We can participate in Jesus' new humanity. That is the second gift of Christmas. The third and final gift of Christmas is the the appearance of the Father. Right? When, uh, When Jesus came, he came to do the will of the Father. What did Jesus talk about most? He talked about the kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom that was going to become. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And you can participate in his kingdom because he's the king. And in him you can have life through the spirit. The same spirit that Jesus has can be implanted in you. 
And we have the hope and the promise that because the Father willed that the Son would come and the Son obeyed the Father's will and by the Spirit the Son walked in obedience to the Father all the way to the end that it was God's, Isaiah says, it was God's pleasure to crush the Son. That sounds terrible. It would be terrible if the Father and the Son didn't agree on it and it was to save us because we couldn't bear the punishment. But Jesus could and He did. And He brought to fulfillment Adam's curse. So that we might be called children of God. And we look forward to the coming of the King. And we have in the promises of God, His kingdom is coming. And one day, Revelation, right? One day, the new heavens and the new earth are going to come down and men, people, are going to dwell with God. And He's going to dwell with His people, God's people in God's place, dwelling with His presence forever. And yet that starts now because you can have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the gift of Christmas. So this Christmas, as you're giving gifts to one another, remember the gift that God has given that has, that has paid the debt, that has set you free, that you might be in Christ and might have new life in Him. And rejoice. Rejoice. All you must do is believe. Trust. Entrust your whole life to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you have not left us alone, but you have broken in, broken into our sin, broken into our rebellion. God, you have purchased us from the dominion of darkness, and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your Son in the light. God, I, I pray um, that you would help us to be a people, that you would give us faith, because faith comes from you that you would give us faith, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of who you are. Lord, open our eyes to see the truth of who we are in relationship to you. And then give us the strength and the courage and the humility to repent of our own righteousness, of our own works, of our own deeds, that we might entrust ourselves to the living God in Jesus. God, we, we pray these things because we need them. And I just thank you that you're a, a good God who gives generously and abundantly. So Lord, help us to unwrap the present this Christmas that is Jesus. And to delight in his goodness for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite